Cathedral of the Rockies Amity Podcast. My name is Tyler, and I work here at Cathedral of the Rockies with Pastor Ben Kramer. Today in our Seasons of Giving series, Pastor Ben talks about the idea of simplicity. He will start off by asking the question, what does it mean to be part of the kingdom of God when we need things? I find this an interesting question because Jesus regularly challenges our modern concepts and practices of materialism, but He doesn't say we are to live as destitute either. So how can we hold these two ideas in tension, and how can simplicity help us? And just as a reminder, you can always check out our church, Cathedral of the Rockies, on our website and on our social media platforms. There you can see what is going on in the life of our church, and even connect with us online. Links are in the show notes where you can check us out. And with that, enjoy today's sermon. friends, invite you to find your seats and we'll turn to scriptures. Remind you of our thought before the service today. What does it mean to seek the kingdom of God in a world where we need things? (laughs) In a world where those desires can continue to be a, a part of our life. I think what's so powerful to me about Christ's ministry is it's not out of touch with our world today just as much as it wasn't out of touch to the first audience that he was preaching to. So as we listen to Christ's words, let's think about this phrase of Jesus, to seek first the kingdom of God. What does it mean when we live in a world where we need food, we need clothing, we need shelter, we need water, and we know people who need those things as well? So let's listen to these words from Jesus. Um, you, ever, you ever read a passage in scripture and then the first line you're like, well, I can't measure up to that. The first line in our, our passage today is, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. I have nothing to say. <laughs> I have failed already this morning as one who's expecting a, you know, a, a daughter to come into the world. I don't know what it means to be a, a dad of a daughter. Already worried. <laughs> failed, Right? That's, again, that's why we gather together to look at the scriptures, because Jesus is speaking to something deeper here, all right? Let's, let's listen to these words together. Verses 25 through 33. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? That line needs to be read again for some of us. Are you not much more valuable than they to God? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, 
you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. The written word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if we just take that passage at face value, it can be, it has the potential of being used in some harmful ways. I've heard this passage used against people who suffer from anxiety and depression as if Jesus commands us to not ever have mental illness. <laughs> That's a very harmful way of interpreting this passage. I've also heard this passage used against people who are genuinely worried about how they will provide for themselves or their families. That's also a harmful way of interpreting this passage. When this passage is used in these harmful ways, two things happen. One, it harms people rather than building them up, which is the exact opposite purpose of Scripture. <laughs> scripture is to build up people, not tear them down. And secondly, we miss the actual power behind Christ's words here. So if you've been a target of this passage being used in those harmful ways, as a pastor, I want to say I'm sorry. <laughs> That's not the way this passage should have been told to you. And that was wrong. So I want to together look at what Jesus is really trying to get at by his words in this center part of his sermon on the mount. You see, again, we're looking at the central part of Jesus' sermon on the mount. And what is the purpose of Christ's sermon on the mount? To help people, to train them what it looks like to live under the reign of God. The essential question of the Sermon on the Mount is, what if God is real <laughs> and God has called you to live a certain way? The answer of that question is, this is the way <laughs> to live the Sermon on the Mount. Five, chapter 5 to chapter 7 in Matthew, Jesus is painting the way that people are called to live under the reign of God. And Jesus recognizes, if you are familiar with Christ's sermons, you've, you see how he has kind of some harsh things to say about money, right? And Jesus is trying to, he knows that possessions can be, pose a problem for people who are wanting to follow God. Wealth can become a competitor to our relationship with God and relationship with our neighbor, Instead of love defining our relationship with God and relationship with our neighbor, possessions can define those things, right? If possessions become the end, our goal, then we can justify all sorts of different things to achieve that goal, right? If the pursuit of wealth and possessions is our number one purpose in life, you're going to make some pretty different decisions to get there, right? You've heard of the phrase, the ends justify the means, right? Well, if, all, if wealth is your number one priority, you're going to justify some maybe means that don't align with God's reign <laughs> to get that wealth, right? Just like we talked about with the rich young ruler last week, justifying owning people for the sake of accumulating wealth. But Jesus is saying right at the very end, seek first what? God's reign, 
God's kingdom. Seek first God's kingdom and all of these things will be added unto you. So essentially Jesus is saying, your end goal as followers, as my followers, is the reign of God. And the greatest commandment in the reign of God is to love your neighbor as yourself, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. These two commandments shape the way we live under God's reign. So if that's the end goal, then even our wealth and our possessions are to be used to do what? Accomplish that goal, right? But in a world where we do need things, that can be one of the greatest competitors with our love for God, love for neighbor, and love for ourselves is possessions. And Jesus recognizes that. And it it strikes me too that Jesus' first audience would have been counted among the poorest of the poor. Many of them would have been the poorest of the poor, right? There are some wealthy individuals who follow Jesus. Like I would say Matthew the tax collector, Zacchaeus would be counted among the more wealthy people who follow Jesus. But the majority of them would have been fishermen or tradesmen, you know, carpenters like himself who are not part of the 1%. And so Jesus is trying to say here, not a message of condemnation over their lack of wealth, but he's trying to give them words of comfort to say, God's got you. When you're speaking to a group of poor people and you come along and say, God doesn't want you to worry about your next meal. God doesn't want you to worry about the clothes that you're going to wear, right? And when you are impoverished, that can be an all-consuming thought. But what picture does Jesus paint for those who are listening to this sermon? I love it. He's saying, look at how interconnected creation is. In other parts of his sermon, he says, there's not a sparrow that falls from the sky that God doesn't know about. There isn't a hair that falls from your head, and some of us quicker than others. There isn't a hair that falls from your head that God is unaware about. God provides for the sparrows of the air and the lilies of the field, even the grass God cares about. How much more than those who are created in God's image does God care for and want to provide for? In in one of the central parts of theology for, from Judaism to Christianity is that God is involved in all things creation. You read the Psalms and what is God doing? God is raising the sun and raising the moon to give us the coolness of night. He's placing the stars in the sky. God is an active participant in creation, even now. And so with a God who is not saying, we've created everything and I'm gonna step back now, It's up to you to survive. Jesus is saying, God has not only created all things, but here I am in the flesh standing here in front of you to show you a way of being interconnected with each other. And what happens to the poor when we know we're interconnected together? We don't let them fall off the edge, right? And what happens? They don't have to worry about where their next meal comes from. Jesus' phrase later on says, today has enough trouble for itself. He acknowledges the hardship that they're going through. But a call to live under the reign of God is to call to say, loving your neighbor as yourself. And you can't love your neighbor as yourself without your neighbor. (laughs) 
And that's why we often try to make this Christianity an individualistic endeavor. I'm going to love God and love my neighbor, but I'm, my spirituality is up to me. I'm going to do this Christian thing on your own, on, on my own. And Jesus goes, eh. <laughs> this reign of God calls for an understanding of not only how interconnected God is with creation, but how interconnected we are to each other. We really do need each other. Can I get an amen for that? We really do need each other. And for people to not have to worry where their next meal comes from, their clothing, their shelter, it means a community that is collectively loving each other well. We see this in Acts chapter 2, where after Pentecost, they get poured out in the streets. Everybody hears the Spirit in their own language. You know where I'm at, right, in Scripture. And what do the the disciples do? Those early, early disciples, they get together, and and Acts chapter 2 says, they gathered together, gathered all of their possessions so that no one had a need among them. And even the wealthy of the community came and sold off parcels of land because they heard about a family in need. That's a community where people aren't worrying about where their food comes from, right? So what's at the heart here then? Why is Jesus saying, don't worry about these things? Well, one, again, he sees possessions and wealth as a competitor for our allegiance to God and to each other. But when we are all consumed with the consumption of those things, we leave no room for God's work of justice in the world. When our entire preoccupation is the accumulation of wealth and material possessions, we are leaving no room for helping those who don't have those things, right? It becomes all about, it's, have you ever heard the term myth of, uh, the myth of scarcity? In our culture, we have what's called the myth of scarcity where we really do believe that there's not enough to go around, right? And when you believe that there's not enough to go around, you're gonna, I mean, let's take toilet paper at the beginning of COVID. <laughs> Just as one example of that, or water bottles, right? This myth of scarcity is real. Hoarding was one of the unspeakable sins at the beginning of the pandemic, where people went to Costco or the store and bought it all for who? Themselves, right? This myth of scarcity, there isn't enough to go around, and that impacts probably immigration, one of the biggest issues. Like, we don't have enough to go around here. Didn't indigenous people say anything like that when we first got here? (laughs) No, they shared. A lot of them shared to their own demise, right? But you won't be generous when you deeply believe that there's not enough to go around, right? And so Jesus is really speaking to that here. When your sole focus, when you're not seeking first the kingdom of God or God's reign in the world, and you're seeking first possessions and material wealth, you're going to be convinced that there's really not enough to go around because there's so much competition for those things, right? It leaves no room, one, for helping other people who don't have those things, but it also leaves no room to trust in God to provide those things, right? And the myth of scarcity also convinces us that we will never have enough. We will never have enough. 
I think all of consumerism in our culture is predicated on this idea that you need the new thing or you're not going to be cool. Like, I, you know, I'm showing my age here. I remember when the first smartphone came out and there were years between iPhones. Now, how many times do new iPhones come out? It made me sick to my stomach the other day when I read an article about a Jeep subscription. I subscribe to maybe like a book club and get a new book every month or so. This is a Jeep subscription where you get the newest model of a car when it comes out. You know where my mind went? A mountain of junkyards with barely used Jeeps in them. And it's not that, it's not that extreme, right? I'm sure they take the Jeep and they sell it to po some poor sap like me who can't afford a new car. And who will use it until it gets driven into the ground, right? But do you see what kind of model that shapes when we need the new thing every single year? The next iPhone, the... And, when I learned about how, what it takes to create that demand, <laughs> how we're taking minerals from some of the poorest nations of the world in the Congo, causing some of the deadliest conflicts since World War II in those regions so we can have the minerals to make those cell phones so that we can sell them the newest one every year. And don't get me started about how angry I am at those companies. They have the technology that they keep trying to drag the carrot along. It's like, oh, we have this new, little newer camera for you in this model. And like, you had that technology for years and you're just giving it to us, right? All so that they can get more money. <laughs> I think capitalism, we are not in a socialistic country. People worry about socialism a lot. I'm like, have you seen America? We are not. Socialism isn't our threat and neither is communism. It's the other side of the spectrum, okay? We need to be worried about predatory capitalism because why? We're a capitalistic country. <laughs> we, we're not, it's not a slippery slope into socialism. How we're using capitalism in ways that divide class, race, gender, and how we've been doing that notoriously, we need to think, especially as followers of Jesus, how our pursuit of wealth and use of possessions are shaped by the reign of God that we want to see come into the world, right? It would be like... <laughs> Growing up in Idaho, right, it would be like me growing up in Idaho and saying, man, I'm really concerned Idaho is going to start looking like communist Russia. What's the threat of that? Idaho? Have you seen Idaho? <laughs> right? They give you a Glock when you're born. Like, we're not, we're, we're not going to be, <laughs> communist Russia is not the thing we need to fear. We need to look like we need to be concerned about looking like Germany in the 1930s. That's what we, our concern needs to look like. How we're going to be using capitalism. You know where the Volkswagen Beetle came from? The Volkswagen? <laughs> that was the first capitalistic endeavor by the Nazi regime to build wealth for the war machine. Right? Volkswagen. The Volkswagen Beetle. And so this 
whole foundation of our society. We need to be thinking very intentionally because whether we like it or not, we are in it. So here's some myths that need busting, Just, just a few of them. Rugged individualism, right? Rugged individualism tells us that the pursuit of wealth is up to who? You, right? And that success and pursuit of happiness in this life is up to who? You and you alone. Ask anyone who volunteers at any food pantry, including ours, how much shame there is wrapped around just asking for help in a culture that emphasizes rugged individualism. Because when you are convinced that wealth and pursuit of happiness is only up to you, you're going to start moralizing poverty as if it's their fault that they're in poverty, right? Who has heard of laziness attributed to poor people before? Right? Too much. (laughs) Do we take into account circumstances when we're already calling them lazy? No. No. Do we see the factors that lead them there? I read one of the most powerful quotes recently. It said, we come along and we try to have compassion for an individual. And yet sometimes our compassion doesn't extend to the circumstances that led that individual there. And if our compassion doesn't lead us to change structures that are broken, that cause that individual to be an object of our compassion, we're not trying hard enough. (laughs) Because circumstances and structures can often lead people into poverty even though they have worked so hard their whole life and they've still ended up where they're at. Rugged individualism leads to moralizing wealth and poverty. When have you heard the last time you've heard, oh, they're a self-made man. It's often a man too, coincidentally. Oh, they're a self-made man. They're a billionaire all on their own. That is such a lie. All by themselves? No employees, no organization, literally no inheritance from a wealthy family, nothing? They're not self-made. They're just denying the fact that we live in a community and we really do need each other. And they become wealthy by the work of others too. (laughs) So again, these two myths that are so ingrained in our culture, Jesus is coming along here and saying, Instead of rugged individualism, love your neighbor and let your neighbor love you and love God. Leave room for trusting God even in the little mundane, ordinary things of life. There's a little hard phrase in here uh, that says, you of little faith. Did you catch that? Was we were reading through. Why are you worried about these things? You of little faith. Jesus uses that two other times in Matthew. Matthew 8, when he walks on water. The disciples struggle after seeing him walk on water. And he comes along and says, you of little faith. I really resonate with the disciples. If I saw someone walking on water, I would struggle with that too. You know the other time he says that? After Jesus multiplies loaves and fishes for a group of 10,000 people and feeds them all and says, you have little faith. Again, resonate with the disciples on that one. I would have a hard time too wondering what happened. How did Jesus accomplish this? Those were two huge miracles, right? But to contrast that, and that's chapter 8 and chapter 14. This is chapter 6. And Jesus is saying, you of little faith over what? Not a miracle. Not a grand display of God. It's over food, shelter, water, clothing, 
It's over the little everyday needs of life. Essentially, Jesus is saying, if you're not able to trust God in these little tiny things in life, the things that make every day happen for you, how are you going to trust and have the faith to see people walk on water (laughs) and to see crowds being fed by this interconnected reign of God, right? And that's really what has convicted me is like, I think in this culture of rugged individualism, we downplay incremental results, incremental goals. I think I said this last week, we all want the six pack. We all don't want to wake up at six in the morning and go to the gym, right? These are conflicting goals, right? How do we get to this without doing this all the time, right? We all want certain financial goals, but we also want $5 coffee drinks every day, or we want ice cream, me, or we want something, right? And so we spend those things and defeat the goal that we want to accomplish. I want to read more, but do I read every day, right? If I have a certain amount of books I want to read, I better be reading incrementally every single day. And I think we downplay that in our society. You start saving that $5 instead of going to your coffee shop or whatever your habit is, you will be blown away by how much you're spending on that thing, right? So Jesus is saying this incremental life, he says, tomorrow has worries of its own, Look at the incremental decisions you're making today and how you're trusting God. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. That is a statement of trust, that God is not only going to provide for our needs, but that we are being simple in our needs too. I'm not gonna go and hoard a bunch of food so that I can have bread for the rest of my days. And I'm not saying that I like Costco as much as anyone, okay? I'm not anti-Costco. Don't hear that this morning. But what I am saying is, are we shaping our possessions and our wealth in a way that says, am I trusting God as much as I can in this moment? Am I living simply so that others can simply live? (laughs) Or Am I living a little beyond my means so I can feel more comfortable myself? It's really about changing that orientation with wealth and possessions. John Wesley had this phrase in his sermon, which was much more fiery than mine on money, but I picked out this really good part. Um, John Wesley says about money, in the hands of God's children, it is food for the hungry, drink for the thirsty, clothing for the naked. It gives to the traveler and the stranger a place to lay their head. By it, we supply our parent to parentless. We may be a defense for the oppressed, a means of health to the sick, of ease to them that are in pain. It may be as eye to the blind, feet to the lame. Yes, even a lifter up from the gates of death. Money isn't inherently, you've heard this phrase, money is the root of all evil. That's one of the phrases that people think is in the Bible that's not in the Bible, (laughs) right? Money isn't the root of all evil. Money is a tool like anything else. It can be used for great good, like what John Wesley is talking about. It can also be used for great harm, too. Mother Teresa says, if you can't feed a crowd of 5,000, referring to the crowd of 5,000 people, at least feed one person, right? And sometimes I don't think we have our picture um, shaped enough with our priorities where can I, what can I give? Even if it's not huge, can I do something incremental? 
So here are some action steps for us to ponder this this idea of simplicity in our lives. Uh, John Wesley has this quote that says, um, "In, in life, gain all you can, save all you can, and give all that you can. And he's talking about possessions and wealth by by saying this. Gain all that you can, save all that you can, give all that you can. And I found that keeping those three phrases together um, has really helped me to orient my my generosity, but also my budgeting and and other things. If you know anything about John Wesley, he vowed to never have more than the equivalent today of $5 in his bank account. He was a very well-paid Anglican priest, he was an Anglican until the day that he died, and then those rowdy Methodists came along and left. He's like, don't create a new denomination. And then he was buried, and what they do? Created a new denomination, <laughs> Methodism. And uh, Methodists have been at the forefront of how we use wealth and possessions ever since John Wesley. I meant to bring this today, but I saw a church sign. You know how church signs can sometimes be really corny? But sometimes they can be really, really powerful. And I saw this phrase, and I'll I'll tell you the punchline in just a second, but it's a powerful, powerful phrase. It says, um, eight men have more wealth than 3.6 billion people on this planet. But sure, the single mom on welfare is the problem. And I looked at the bottom of, I'm like, this is on a church sign? And I looked at the bottom and it said, Grace Methodist Church. I'm like, those Methodists. Always causing trouble, right? But again, that's the prophetic voice we need in a culture that just automatically deems the wealthy as good and the poor as bad, right? We need to start reorienting these things. So John Wesley, if you'd leave those up there, Shane, John Wesley didn't keep more than $5 in his account because he didn't want to die without giving all that he could. He met his he, he, you know, he got his groceries, he met all of his needs for that, and then whatever he didn't need to save for the future, he gave away. He gave away. Just, a, just an incredible a model of generosity. So gain all that you can. What does it look like in your life, your financial life? I think it comes down to stewardship. Are you, are you looking for ways of investing your wealth? Are you looking for ways for building your wealth that, that are as sustainable and, and ethical are you keeping your family in mind, right, for the future? Um, are, are you building those ads, assets and gaining them, not just to have it, but to use it in, in ways that love your neighbor and your priorities with God? And then save all you can. Gaining all you can comes with that saving um, asterisk there, right? Are we saving in ways that build a better future for our loved ones, including those in our community? Saving can be... Um, really intentional as well. Like uh, I talk with people who are, are putting together their uh, end of life statements, their wills a lot. And one of the things that has really been inspiring to me is that they find a charity that they have been giving to every day and they want to make sure that the stuff that they've saved amount, a portion of that goes to them. It could be a local church. It could be the Salvation Army. It could be something else. But they set aside those allocated resources and they've been saving that for that purpose. So even when they're not here, their legacy is carried on by giving what they have saved for those, their family and those organizations. And then give all you can. And this starts with what we were, talked about last Sunday of making sure that our house, our financial house is in, is in order. And it comes down to those incremental decisions. Where is our money going? How much money is coming in? And what are my goals? 
We, we can't save, we can't give, and we can't gain without understanding what our goal is, right? And at the end of the day, Jesus' sermon is saying, may your goals be shaped by seeking first the kingdom of God. Because then that sets your priorities in line, right? It says, my, my goal isn't mass hoarding of wealth. That's not my goal. It's the reign of God. So now how can I use my wealth in pursuit of the kingdom first? And then trusting that God will provide for your needs as well when you we're using our resources wisely. And then we can start building those habits of generosity. I really don't think we can just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be totally and completely generous today, right? Generosity, again, is an incremental habit. It's, it's a, something that we are working to build into our lives, right? It's not just one gift here and there. It's sustainable generosity building our lives around that priority. And I think that's the essential simplicity that Jesus is calling us to here, that seeking first the kingdom of God means letting the reign, God's reign, and our love of neighbor shape all that we've been given and our trust in God as we journey through this life. Thanks for listening today. Here at Cathedral of the Rockies, our motto is all means all, and we strive to truly live this out. You can help be a part of this by giving to us online. Here at the Amity campus specifically, we feed the hungry through our very active food pantry. Also, we are building up our children and youth programs so that we can serve all families in our area and then also provide safe spaces for them to just be themselves. All means all. Any amount given is an investment that allows us to continue to serve those who join us in person and online. And serve the growing neighborhoods around our church building. There is a link in the show notes where you can give online. Thanks again for joining us today and have a great rest of your day.